Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. In our study of the book of Daniel, we've already seen him distance himself, separate himself from sin in chapter 1. Separation from sin leads to revelation from God in chapter 2. With separation from sin and then revelation from God, at the end of the chapter, we see the promotion, the elevation of Daniel and his friends. You'll remember that the chapter began in peril for Daniel and his friends when Nebuchadnezzar was tormented by a reoccurring dream. The dream caused the king to insist that the wise men, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the counselors tell him his dream and then give the interpretation of the dream. And again, the wise men begged him to reveal the dream and then they would interpret the dream. And that but he wouldn't do it. So we, we begin to understand something. That failure to do so in the dream in verses 1 through 13 would result in all of their death. And what I've already told you in the chapter, remember, unless there's a God in heaven, unless there's a person who could reveal secrets, Daniel and his friends are all going to die. So Daniel and his friends pray. And they praise the God of heaven and the God of their fathers in verses 14 through 23. God reveals the dream and the meaning of the dream to Daniel in verses 24 through 45. The peril leads to praise and prayer and then the untying of the prophecy. The dream was going to be about the unfolding of all of human history. And so Daniel tells of a great statue of gold, a chest of silver and a torso of brass with legs of iron and feet and toes with a strange mixture of iron and clay in verses 36 through 45. Daniel reveals to the king that he's the head of gold and that through a series of successive human kingdoms that they're going to unfold and it's going to be interrupted. Humanity is going to be interrupted by a supernatural stone that's going to come from heaven and smash the feet of this gigantic image crushing the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron into powder, and then it's going to be spread to the four winds. This, then this, this 
rock that comes from heaven is going to create an unstoppable mountain, produce an eternal kingdom that's going to be ruled by the God of heaven and the revealer of secrets. And so Daniel is telling the king, all of human history is going to come to an abrupt and permanent halt. And so the Bible's clear that we should humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and that God will lift us up in due time. That's the principle, a reoccurring principle in James chapter 4, verse 10, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. So we learn from Daniel another thing, that Daniel is going to go against the grain. He's going to separate himself from sin and connect himself to God. And then we discover something else, that the way down is the way up. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Only fools despise wisdom and discipline. So what do we learn from Daniel? We learn in part, it makes perfect sense to make a clean break from sin. It makes perfect sense to trust God. It makes perfect sense to believe God. And so we see the king's response to God's revelation in verses 46 and 47. In verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the king of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Now you've got to understand something. The dream is already revealed that Nebuchadnezzar is a king among kings. But this king falls on his face prostrate. That means that he's lying down. This is never a position of a worldly king. He literally submits himself. Now the Christian reading the passage knows that it's not Daniel, but God who deserves the glory and the praise. And you should be reminded right away in the text that remember throughout chapter 2, Daniel continues to give God the glory. He says, it's God who reveals secrets. There's a God in heaven. It's this supernatural, invisible, eternal God that I want to point you to. And this becomes something that each and every one of us can learn from. If you give God the glory, if you give God the credit, then people are going to be more interested in your God than they are in you. Because our whole point isn't to draw attention to ourself or our abilities. Daniel is going to become the conduit and the servant. So what are we to think of the king and his response to the revelation given by Daniel? 
part of what you have to understand is hopefully what you are already experiencing in the chapter. This king is overwhelmed. Remember what we've already learned. The king is wondering, is there such a thing as the supernatural? Are there gods and goddesses? Are, is there a supernatural realm? Remember, he is going to challenge the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the wise men. Whatever cynicism, whatever pessimism, whatever skepticism the king entertained concerning the supernatural has been satisfied by Daniel's revelation and explanation of the dream in verses 36 through 45. The king is deeply impressed with Daniel and Daniel's God. The substance and the significance of the dream should leave even the casual reader with the profound understanding again. There is a sovereign and almighty God. There is a God who rules over the affairs of men. There is a God who knows the beginning from the end. The king of Babylon is convinced that the God of Daniel is the source of wisdom, but the king's comment is by no means a confession of faith. The king is rightly impressed with Daniel's God. But at this point, the king is only prepared to have him join the king's pantheon of Babylonian deities. And you've got to understand that that's what's happening. This king doesn't convert from polytheism to theism. He doesn't abandon his past and his culture or even his devotion and commitment to Marduk, which is the chief and the principal deity of Babylon. And there are many people in our lives as we share Christ and the Bible, for some reason they're willing to acknowledge that the Bible might be true and that Jesus might be Lord but for some reason, they hold on to the gods and goddesses that they've accumulated over the course of their life. And you wonder why. Because when you became a Christian, some of you understood the implications of Jesus coming back to life. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if he literally comes back to life in this supernatural thing called the resurrection, you were forced to rethink everything that you had ever learned. Daniel's deity is different from the gods of Babylon the king is willing to acknowledge that. The court counselors and the advisors may have winced when the king declared Daniel's God to be the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. But they should have done it with gratitude. Because remember, unless there's a God in heaven they were all going to die. So I'm going to suggest to you there is a sense of some relief on the part of the counselors and, and the, the Chaldeans and the magicians and the astrologers. I want to ask you a question. Do you think the king is sincere in his confession? I think the answer is yes. I think so. But his sincerity is going to wear thin. 
and then it's going to wear away. In other words, even though he is overwhelmed and impressed with Daniel and his God, there's something he's a little bit more impressed by, and that's himself. And the pride is going to eventually well up inside of him. And he's going to forget at least part of the meaning of the dream. Because in chapter 2, he's going to erect a statue that seems to represent in part his dream. So again, I'm going to suggest to you that even Socrates said that wisdom begins with wonder... And the king may wonder what all of this means. The king orders that sacrifices and sweet incense be offered on behalf of Daniel. Some have suggested the king's offerings is a tribute to, to Daniel. Because again, this sweet incense and this sacrifice is usually something that is only allowed to the gods of Babylon... I'm going to suggest to you that the reason why Daniel allows this to happen is that more likely Daniel is being extended the courtesy of being treated like the high priest of Daniel's God. In other words, this king doesn't see, touch, taste, or smell this invisible, eternal, immortal God, but he knows that he is in the presence of a person who is favored by this God. The king praises Daniel, and then he promotes Daniel. Look again in verse 48, the king's reward to God's servant. It says, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all of the wise men of Babylon. You may be unfamiliar with the geographical territories, but if you have a Bible and you have maps in the back, you may have a map that gives you uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates Valley. But the, 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 the area of, of Babylon would have stretched to the mouth of, of the Gulf of Persia, and it would have went up the rivers to, of the Tigris and the Euphrates, stretching past Nineveh, going all the way to modern Turkey. It, was, it would have been the province of Babylon or Babylonia would have been a massive province that would have incorporated all of Kuwait, all of modern Iraq, all of modern Iran, and parts of Turkey, and all of the Levant, which would mean it would stretch from Lebanon all the way to the mouth of Egypt. And so... The king keeps his promise in verse 6 of chapter 2. Remember, he says, however, in verse 2, chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 6. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. The gifts, the rewards, and the great honor are not clearly spelled out in the text. What is spelled out is, again, Daniel isn't interested in the promotion or the reward. Daniel believes that God should receive the glory. So why is Daniel honored and rewarded? 
Again, let's think about what we've read in the text. Daniel is convinced that God is real and that the Bible is true and that he finds himself in the circumstance that God has allowed him to be in. He has made the decision to separate himself from sin. He has made the decision to attach himself to the Lord God. He is faithful to God. He is not going to compromise his convictions. He will trust God. He will pray and praise the Lord. And so guess what? He's honored. Daniel trusted him. By the way, when Solomon became king, God invited Solomon. He said, you haven't asked for riches. You haven't asked for reward. You haven't asked for long life. Ask me whatever you want, and you'll remember Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. Solomon says, give me an understanding mind so that I can govern your people and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great nation of yours? And so wisdom begins... When we ask God to be our source and supply, wisdom begins the moment you pray a prayer, Lord, help me think your thoughts, reveal your character to me, communicate with me what it is that you want and don't want. Now again, we're not told what these gifts are, but we can guess that the gifts is going to include a massive amount of gold, a massive amount of silver. It's going to include lands. He is going to be given a palace that is suitable to a person who is the ruler of the province of Babylonia. But that also means that he is going to be given almost certainly slaves, servants, who are going to attend Daniel. So Daniel is made both chief counsel over the city and the province of Babylon, and then he's made the chief administrator over all of the advisors in the king's court. And so again, it, it makes perfect sense to the king to reward Daniel with riches and title and honor. For what reason? Not just simply because he said he would in verse 6. I want you to think about what's going through this king's mind. Does Daniel have a comprehensive understanding of the past? Yes. Does he have a comprehensive understanding of what's going on in the world? Yes. Has he demonstrated that of all of the people who live on the planet Earth, he seems to be the most insightful about what's going to happen in the future? The answer is yes. So it makes perfect sense. To reward Daniel. But it also makes perfect sense to this king that based on his wisdom and understanding, based on his understanding of the past and his unprecedented understanding of the future, the promotion of Daniel makes perfect sense. But Daniel knows something more. He knows that the promotion isn't simply coming from the king of Babylon. But the true source of the promotion is the eternal, invisible 
only wise God. So why does the king promote Daniel? If we were to take all of the reasons and lump them into one singular reason, I'm going to suggest to you that it's because he is wise. Daniel is wise. John Phillips writes, quote, the problems that come with advancement might be different from those that come with adversity, but they are equally trying to the child of God. Does being just a regular servant captive in a foreign place bring with it problems? Yes. Will the promotion and the elevation of Daniel and his friends create problems? Well, for those of you who've read the book of Daniel, all you have to do is look at the next chapter, chapter 3. It's going to bring its own set of circumstances. And you might be thinking, wow, I wish I could just get out of this job that I have. I wish I could get out of this dead-end circumstance. I wish I could get out of whatever circumstance that I'm in. I, I wish I could own the Broncos. Not just play for the Broncos, but be the owner. As a matter of fact, if, I had, if all my wishes came true and if all of my dreams came true, if I would just be elevated or, or, and promoted, then all of my dreams would come true. Guess what? Be careful what you wish for. Because with great powers, I know it sounds like a Marvel comic book, <laughs> comes great responsibilities. In the New Testament, we discover something. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes that it is in Jesus that all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge abide. It is in Jesus where we see wisdom perfected and knowledge consummated. And this is why Paul would later write, that in Jesus you have everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness in the knowledge of our Savior. So again, there's a principle that begins like a light shining on us. The truly wise person peers past all the earthly things that they might have Christ. I want that great job, but I want Jesus more. I want elevation and promotion, but I want Jesus more. I, I certainly want security and safety for my family, but I want Jesus more. And now we begin to understand what the Bible means when Jesus says, you should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And what's interesting to me is that if you will seek first the kingdom of God, all of these other things will become a lot less interesting. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, quote, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. There is no fool so great as a knowing fool, but to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom, unquote. You know what? It's knowledge when you understand that a tomato <laughs> is a fruit and not a vegetable. But here we go. 
Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge. But remember the kind of knowledge that it's asking you. It's to meet the emergencies of life. All human beings can successfully acquire some knowledge, but wisdom from above, wisdom from God, is pure and peaceable and gentle. Solomon receives the gift of wisdom from God, but it is up to Solomon to apply that gift in the most unique of circumstances in order to fulfill the will of God, which should cause you to ask this question of the text. Here's Daniel. He's promoted. He's elevated. Does he, still, does he still live in Babylon? Is he still surrounded by gods and goddesses and temples? Is he still surrounded by idolatry? Is he still a captive? You see, you, you have to understand something. You can take the Jewish boy out of Jerusalem, but you can't always take Jerusalem out of him. He is in Babylon, but for the rest of his life, he is going to wake up every morning and he's going to face towards Jerusalem because his heart is in Jerusalem. His life is in Jerusalem. His affection and his hope is in Jerusalem. All that is inside of him, he knows that God's plan and purpose is going to head in that direction. If the God of Daniel is the source of wisdom, and if Daniel is the servant of the source of wisdom, again, it makes perfect sense to make the servant of the source of wisdom in charge of making choices. And if Jesus is the source of wisdom, doesn't it make sense to somehow include Jesus in the process of making your choices? So who's the source of wisdom? Jesus. Who gives us power to separate ourselves from sin? Jesus. Who's the source of revelation? Jesus. So where does wisdom come from? In our world, many think that wisdom comes from native intelligence or human experience. Some people think that wisdom comes for certain people who are born smart or who are born um, entitled or elevated. In our world, we think that wisdom comes from, like I said, native intelligence or human experience. We live in an increasingly complex and, and confusing world. And so we're going to need help in finding wisdom to navigate life's most perplexing questions. Which amazes me that the Christian's are starting to distance themselves from Jesus and the Bible. But I can, I can assure you, after devoting my life to trying to understand things, that Jesus remains the unique, singular, specific source of information. 
Maybe you grew up in a world where high intelligence or a great ACT or an SAT score would offer you a college and then advancement or advanced degrees, familiarity with technology. These are the keys to happiness, success, abundant life that you climb this ladder of success, that you have certain number of zeros you know, with a, with a, with a placeholder um, in your, your bank account. I'm not saying that your bank account is just zero, 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 zero. You know, the, you know, hopefully there's a one or a two or a three in front of the zeros. And you think that if you have enough money in that bank account, it's going to ensure safety and security. And for some people, they think, what does the Bible have to offer? What does Christ have to offer? What does biblical wisdom have to offer the believer? You can go to heaven without a lot of things. But you can't go to heaven without Jesus. So what does biblical wisdom offer the believer? Biblical wisdom offers the believer the opportunity to live in a troubled and a confusing world and a difficult world and a painful world with the presence of Jesus in your life. With the presence of the God who reveals secrets in your life. With the certainty of knowing that the God who knows the future is, can be trusted. And you might think, well, what about suffering? And, and what about pain? And, and what about difficulty? And what about setbacks? And I don't want to trivialize suffering. And I don't want to trivialize pain. And I don't want to trivialize setbacks. But death is at best temporary. And the Christian will come back to life. Suffering, as horrible and terrible as it is, is going to one day result in the reconciliation of all things to God through Christ. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verses 97 and 98, Oh, how I love your law. I think about it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for your commands are my constant guide. I read something this week that even I was unfamiliar with, and it was the argument that Psalm 119, according to some scholars, there seems to be some evidence that our friend Daniel may have written it. It's interesting to me. It's based on an acronym where you do the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, um, Dalit, He, Va, Sayin, He, Teth. Some scholars have suggested that this psalm was written by the Jews in captivity in Babylon and that Daniel might have used it as a teaching aid in order to remind the people who are in captivity of, of who the God of the Bible is. 
If that's true, then Psalm 119 verses 97 and 98 becomes all the more important when you read, oh, how I love your law. I think about it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. Do you realize that knowing just a little bit about the Bible will make you wiser than the person who knows everything about philosophical naturalism or evolution. In what sense? In the sense that even a child who can sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, exceeds everyone around them. Prayer, praise, worship. These aren't simply religious activities to distract from the problems of the real world. Prayer and praise and worship and Bible study and friendship and relationship with the Lord, this is what's going to provide you with the grace and the wisdom that you're going to need to negotiate the most difficult things that life is going to throw at you. With the Lord Jesus, you're going to be able to navigate the storms. And so wisdom is more than memorizing scripture or even answering hard Bible questions. Wisdom is the willingness to apply God's revelation to the real world in which we live. In this chapter, God has used Daniel to put his own wisdom in the spotlight. I'm reminded of a statement by Thomas Jefferson who said, when a man assumes a public trust, he should consider himself as public property. I think that there's a certain sense in which that is true. But Daniel, Daniel, Daniel will always act with propriety. He will always act with dignity. He will always act with honesty. He will always act with integrity. And he is never going to become public property. He is God's property. He is God's property. You see, sometimes when we put ourselves in the public light... We think that we owe the public something, but make no mistake about it. Your first loyalty lies to the Lord Jesus. Whoever entertained thoughts of harming Daniel must have at least paused and considered that whatever harm comes to Daniel would surely result in greater harm to themselves. And so... <laughs> I have to admit that if I were one of the pay, you know, we're not told how the wise men reacted to the, the king's decision. Now, again, just place yourself in the text and in the circumstance. The king says, Daniel's God is, is above all the other gods. And I'm placing Daniel in charge of everything. And the other wise men, counselors, astrologers, and Chaldeans, probably as they're inhaling, they're thinking, Thank God for Daniel, because if it weren't for Daniel, I'd be dead. And then they exhale 
And they realize that this Jewish captive is now their boss. And they need time to think about this. They need time to think about it. By the way, is their gratitude going to maintain itself throughout the whole book of Daniel? And it's funny what happens to the Christians sometimes. Is it possible that your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends, they were grateful when you became a Jesus person. At least you're not drinking and drugging and doing whatever it is that you used to do. And you go, well, at least this going to church and carrying the Bible, at, at least I don't have to worry about bailing you out of prison. But then all of a sudden you really start to believe the Bible and you start to read it and believe it and you live your life like it's true. And then they begin to not like you as much. Look at the king's respect for God's servant in verse 49. Also Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now on rare occasions in the book of Daniel, he will petition the king. And he will ask a special favor or a special request. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tasked with the administrative duties for the province of Babylon. Daniel is going to sit in the gate of the king. This is an expression which means that Daniel will serve in the palace of the king in the role of an administrative judge or a chief magistrate in the king's court. So the expression, sat in the gate of the king, means to sit in the place of authority. Now, this authority doesn't undermine the king's authority, but rather, for most of, of the events that have to take place, Daniel is the chief authority concerning the litigation of what's going on. As far as, as far as court systems and, 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 and the bureaucratic policies of maintaining an empire. Now, I want you to contrast this just for a moment. Because the Bible talks about another Bible character sitting in the gate of the city. In the Old Testament, we learn that Lot sits in the gate of Sodom. Lot unlike Daniel, is going to compromise and sit in the place of authority of a city that's destined for judgment. Sodom has only one thing that's going to happen to it. It's going to be judged and it's going to be destroyed. Babylon is going to exist for a while. It's going to serve as the head of gold. And it's going to provide at least the beginning of what it means as human history unfolds of God's plans and purposes. Lot is going to sit in the, in the gate of Sodom. He compromises. He will move away from God's will. Daniel will sit in the gate of Babylon, but he will retain integrity and wisdom, and authority. He is going to do that 
which is consistent with justice and righteousness. Now, I, Lot, by the way, as he sits in, in his compromised position, is going to lose everything. Daniel is going to acquire things that will be important for all of human history. And as we look at the book of Daniel, as it unfolds, we're going to begin to discover what some of that stuff is. So, just a quick question. Why would Daniel petition the king to include his friends? Why doesn't Daniel just say, I'm making my friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, my pals, my friends, they are going to work with me. Why does Daniel petition the king? I want you to think about it for a moment. The reason why Daniel petitions the king is because he's wise. I want you to think about this for a moment. He's too wise to promote them himself. Daniel brings their names before the king. You see, it's one thing when Daniel goes, Oh, king, will you please consider these people and their appointment in this important role? John Phillips again writes, And the king, convinced of Daniel's integrity and insight, did not hesitate to promote them too. How they handled the special snares of advancement is told in the chapter that follows. Now, I want you to think about this because, again, what he is doing is he's reminding the king, you put me in charge, but I still submit to you. And the king goes, wait, who's the smartest person in the whole world? Daniel. Who has the most force of character, integrity, and insight? Daniel. So if Daniel brings these recommendations to the king, it makes perfect sense that the king would already substantiate what he already knows. Remember we learned from the chapter 1, even when the king was doing an analysis and an evaluation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he found them ten times better than all of the counselors, all of the astrologers, all of the magicians, all of the Chaldeans. And so Daniel isn't content to be honored alone. Daniel asks that his friends share in the promotion. Now I want you to think about this. Daniel shares in the promotion, and I'm going to suggest to you that he shares in the promotion, again, as an opportunity to surround himself in humility and selflessness with like-minded people that he can talk with and pray with concerning the things that are about to unfold. And so Daniel will begin a life of public and civic service that will last some 70 years. Not everyone's going to be happy with the king's choice to honor Daniel. Again, he's a foreigner and a captive. Thomas Akempis wrote, to have a low opinion of our own merits and to think highly of others is evidence of wisdom. All men are frail, but thou shouldst reckon none as frail as thyself. Daniel, a position of authority, 
and responsibility like Joseph in Egypt is going to need help. In the Old Testament, Joseph's father and his family will eventually arrive on the scene and provide the help that he needs. But for now, Daniel needs help. Daniel surely knew, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever it will. You may think that when you unilaterally make decisions apart from the authorities that have been appointed in your life, you're doing them a favor, but nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to think, because each and every one of us at some point in our life has someone that we should submit to and, and will submit to. Joseph Jobert wrote, common sense suits itself to the ways of the world. Wisdom tries to conform to the ways of heaven. And I think that that's true. There is the common wisdom that says, do this. But each and every one of us are going to be tasked with what does heaven have to say about the choice that I'm about to make? And like I said, the promotion is going to involve perils in chapter 3. So Daniel and his friends, they're going to face fresh challenges. Solomon wrote, how wonderful to be wise. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 1, he said, how wonderful to be wise, to be able to analyze and interpret things. Wisdom lights up a person's face, softening its hardness. Wisdom is the ability to see things from God's perspective and then be willing to act. And guess what? We become wiser the moment we become like Christ. The wisest thing you could ever do is accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. This is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus is filled with wisdom. James says, God gives wisdom to everyone who asks. We encourage our children to seek and develop wisdom. The Bible says that Jesus grew in wisdom by walking with God in Luke chapter 2. Jesus grows healthy and wise. And so, I end with this. Our friend Daniel, he's wise. He's separated from sin. He's armed with the revelation of God. Who are the wise? These are the people who find Jesus. Who are the wise? The Spirit of God answers the question in the Word of God. Who are the wise? Like the Magi from the East, Daniel's spiritual descendants. They'll search and they'll discover God's promised Messiah. Who are the wise? The ones who build their life on Christ. Who are the wise? The ones who build their house on the rock. Who are the wise? They're those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus, like the wise and faithful servant in Matthew chapter 24, verse 25. Who are the wise? 
The wise are those who like the master builder in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, they build themselves on the life and the identity and the work and the wisdom of Jesus. Who are the wise? Those who administer for Christ. Who are the wise? Those who live like Jesus. How do we know that? James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. And what is the answer to that question? Who is wise and understanding among you? The person who is wise and understanding among you is the person who says, what are my responsibilities before Jesus? What are my decisions that I have to make before Jesus? And how will I make those decisions? How can I allow Jesus to be my source and supply as I make myself willing to make the choice that's in front of me? And so we begin to understand something. Prayer, praise, knowledge of the Bible, and study of the Bible prepares us for the choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that we're all faced with choices. We're all faced with questions and answers. What will I do with my life? Who will I marry? What will I do? Where will I go? Who will I serve? How will I act responsibly with the stewardship that you've entrusted to me? And Lord, I pray for these men and women. Lord, I pray that just like James said, who is wise and understanding among you? That, Lord, we would show by good confidence that the things that we do, the ministry that you've entrusted to us, the good things that you've asked us to do, and the bad things that you've asked us to refrain from doing, that, Lord, you would empower us to love you and to serve you and to submit to you and so, Lord, I pray for that person who's facing an overwhelming, hard choice. Lord, I pray that you'd give them wisdom and that it would be pure and peaceable and gentle as they present it to you and ask for wisdom in the choice that's being made. In Jesus' name, amen.